Take your Bibles and go with me to the book of Matthew chapter 5. I don't often get sucked in by a title of a book, but I got sucked in by the title of this book. Actually, I'm familiar with their, their two authors. They co-authored this book. I'm familiar with both of their writings. Uh, I've had some issues with both of them, and so for me to get sucked in to buy the book just by the title, understanding who it was, was kind of a big thing. And uh, the title of the book is called in Adventures in Missing the Point. And if the title wasn't enough to suck me in, the first page of reading actually really did. Because in this first page, these two writers, McLaren and Campolo, write of a friend named Jim Henderson who went to visit a Home Depot store. And he went in because he was a customer needing some of their product and uh, working, I guess, a home project of some kind and went into the store and didn't find exactly what he was looking for. And so uh, he started looking around for help and actually didn't have really any trouble finding people who worked there who allegedly could help him. Uh, You know, they had certain kind of clothing on that identified them as employees there. But he noticed that every time he went to one of them to help, they had something else they were working on. One guy was driving a forklift, moving pallets and uh, materials around, and he wouldn't stop and talk to him. And a couple of other ones were kind of congregating and discussing something among themselves. And he waited, and neither one of them or none of those would talk to him. And uh, he went and found another one, employee who had a cell phone and was on the cell phone. And he said, I, I've made my way systematically through various parts of that store. Nobody there could help me. And all of a sudden it dawned on me that I was an intrusion into their world. That I was uh, actually an invasion. And somehow they just didn't really need me there. But he said, as I thought about that, it dawned on me that actually they were missing the point of what the business was about in the first place. Because somewhere, at some point in history, somebody or group of somebodies decided we should start a business to help people who are then going to be customers to purchase a product to help them in their daily lives. But somewhere in the mix of all of that, these Home Depot employees decided that their job was about their job. It had nothing to do with the customer. Adventures in missing the point. Let's take that concept and wear it together today. If our church were to come under the microscope of scrutiny in which we were to be judged about whether we are missing the point of our existence. How would we grade on that? Now, I know that that's pretty easy to sit there and take that and wear it, so let me make it harder for you. I don't really want you to be very comfortable this morning. So, let's say it's your Christian life that comes under that microscope of scrutiny. And somewhere, somebody is looking at your life in the overall context of what we're to be about as Christian people. So all of the structures of your life and all of the activities, all of the things that you're involved in, as they come together, would that person looking at your life say, this person gets it when it comes to the purpose of Christianity, or would they say somehow they're missing the point of it all? 
Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 and following, Jesus now takes us another step deeper into the Sermon on the Mount. We've spent two months looking at the Beatitudes. Those conditions with promises that Jesus highlights are going to be part of a person who is a Christ follower, a disciple of Jesus Christ. And those things have stretched us on our personal relationship with Him, but they've also stretched us on our personal relationship with other people. We're to be peace doers, and we're to be mercy givers, and we're to be ones who are willing to pay the price for our faith because what we live, according to what Jesus describes, is so contrary to the world system that it sets us at odds with them. So he takes us another step, and before he starts building off of the basic thesis of the whole Sermon on the Mount... That comes in verse 20, and then everything after verse 20 builds off of what that thesis is. Before he gets us there, he brings us to this point of purpose. And so in verse 13, he says, you, remember he's on a hillside, and there are disciples gathered around him, those who are his close disciples, those who are would-be disciples, those who are just intrigued with what he has to say. And he points out to them, you are the salt of the earth. But if it has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Another statement, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What is our purpose as children of God? As Crestwood Baptist Church, what are we to be about? Jesus sets it out in two Really simple statements, but simple in the fact that they're easy to say, simple in the fact that the basic concept we can get, but they're loaded with implications for us. Two basic statements. Let's look at what he says and particularly try to figure out what he means by this. The first one is salt. You are the salt of the earth. Now, before we go any further, I'm going to point out five different possible applications of what he means even to those first century people. But before we do that, I want to get the most obvious of them right in front of us and right in your lap, so to speak. In the first century Greco-Roman world, salt was something of tremendous value. Now, we'll look at five different uses of it, but it was valuable in and of itself. As a matter of fact... There is a statement that we've used uh, probably some in our lifetime. He or she is not worth his salt. That comes from the practice of the Roman government and the way they would pay their soldiers. Because periodically they would pay their soldiers in salt. Now, that's not worth risking my life over, just for the record, okay? I'm not asking that you change for me and make my paycheck a bunch of salt. But in the first century world, it was a big thing. Value. If you walked in here today, off of the streets, whether those are, you know, affluent streets or rough kind of streets or wherever your life has been and you walked into this building today, 
you need to hear what that one undergirding truth of what Jesus said that those listeners would have heard. You're important to God. You are the salt of the earth. Now, part of what they would have heard, because of the value of salt in their day, they would have heard him using this term that is loaded with value. And that needs to be what we all hear as we start today. You matter to God. That's good news in a world of people, full of people, wondering whether or not they really count, whether or not they really measure up. People who live lives totally alone, even though they have people all around them, they feel like they're just alone in the world. People have rejected them. People have held them at arm's length. They don't have anything to say to them. If that's you today, hear this. You matter to God. You're valuable to him. You're so valuable to him that in order to have a relationship with you, he's holy, we're sinful. In order for that gap to be bridged, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross so that you could know him. You matter to God. You may not feel like you matter to anybody else, but you matter to him, and that's good news. You're the salt of the earth. Five different implications, five different ways they on that hillside might have heard what Jesus was saying and jumped to believe what he was saying. By the way, notice it's a metaphor. It's a comparison that he's making. You are salt. So in one sense... They might have heard him talk about salt as a preservative. Now, as I walk through these five things, I want you to think about how they apply to us, if that's in fact what Jesus was intending to say. And as a preservative, most of us understand that. There was a city on the Sea of Galilee, right close to where they were, as a matter of fact. Its name was Terrake. In in the Latin language, that means saltings. S-A-L-T-I-N-G-S, not I-N-E-S. I know it's lunchtime and we're all hungry, but... Saltings, Terrake. The reason it was named that is because the Sea of Galilee was home to the fishing industry in the land of Palestine at that time. And in order for them to get those fish that they caught there all the way down to Jerusalem where market was and where they would go and sell their goods, they had to somehow preserve them because it was a long walk, several days' worth, as a matter of fact. And so they developed this industry, fishing industry, and they would preserve them with salt. And that may be what they heard Jesus saying. They're looking out from that mountainside over on the Sea of Galilee. It may very well have been that they were looking at that very town. And so their mind jumps to that. You are the salt of the earth. You are the preservatives here. We don't have to look too hard at our society today to figure out how that could be true. How far afar, how far afield from God's design can America really get? I was up early this morning. I made a critical mistake. And I turned on the television and started flipping through some of the channels. You know, there's a whole lot of nothing on the TV early in the morning, about 5 o'clock or so. I came across a particular program. I'm not even going to tell you who it is. I'll just tell you this. It's a modern, contemporary singer doing a concert who specializes in pushing the envelope. And I watched... Just enough of that 
to hear some things that were being said and being sung that caused me to come back to this passage and ask myself, my goodness, where is the church? If we have that kind of stuff that used to not even be discussed in private and now is being trumpeted to arenas full of people. How far away from God's design can America get? And the answer to that is further than you can even dream. Sin always takes you further than you intended to go. It always makes you stay longer than you thought you would stay. And it always makes you pay more than you intended to pay in the first place. Christians, the church of America in this day, have a preservative quality to us. The question is, where are we in society? There's also as all of us would know, a seasoning element to salt. Job chapter 6, verse 6. This may very well be the earliest book ever written in Scripture. And if that's the case, listen to this. Job says, can that which is tasteless be eaten without salt? Now, let me tell you what that means. Among other things, if this is the earliest book ever written of the Scripture that we have, that means that from time immemorial, uh, people have been cooking stuff that just doesn't taste good. I'm going to read it. Isn't that what it says? Let me tell you something. I grew up in a family where I don't ever remember salt or pepper being on the table. Now, there's a reason for that. My dad, um, now it's, it's, actually what I should say is because my mother was such a wonderful cook, we just didn't need any extra seasoning, okay? Uh, but actually, the deal is, my dad grew up in kind of a rough situation, and so much of his early life he spent at the home of a German family. And this lady would cook for him, and it was an insult if you asked for salt or pepper on your food that she cooked. So my dad grew up just without salt or pepper. So when he got married to my mother, because my mother was such a wonderful cook, that's twice, Mom, uh, then uh, we just didn't use it. So when I married into Teresa's family, well, I just, I'm going to go ahead at this point, so... Um, <laughs> You know, the fact of the matter is some food... Now, I don't want you... Okay, men, don't answer, okay? Don't even let on here, okay? Does your wife's cooking ever need a little bit of help? You know, that's why we have salt. And Tabasco and whatever else you use. Seasoning. You know, that's a great picture of the Christian life as it is intended to be. I'm going to come back to that in a little bit, so let's move on a little bit. Another thing that they would have heard Jesus saying when he says, you are the salt of the earth, is that salt has an antiseptic quality to it. As a little boy, when I was growing up, I'd come in with a sore throat from time to time, and what do you think my mother would do? Give me water and salt, and what am I supposed to do with it? Gargle with it. <laughs> I hated that. I'd rather be sick than do that. Why do it with salt water? Because salt has an antiseptic quality 
to it. We don't have, there, that's no leap at all for us to take that into our age as it relates to Christians and this world. This world is in the constant state of decay from sin. As a disease, the worst kind, it continues to eat us from the inside out as a society. And as Christian people, God leaves us here in order to make a difference in this society. If that was not so, he would translate us to heaven the moment we accepted Christ as our Savior. He leaves us in the midst of the fight for a reason. The antiseptic quality to it. The last two that I want to mention kind of stand together, I think, at least in sense. One of the uses of salt in the first century world was as a catalyst for fire. Specifically, what they would do, I don't really want to ruin your lunch, but you've got to understand what they did. You see, most of Palestine as we know it today is treeless. I mean, it's just wilderness area. And so one of the ways that they would cook their food was they would build these earthen ovens just made out of clay or whatever they had there, and then they would line the bottom of it with a plate of salt, of dried water. They would take it out of the Dead Sea, and they would dry it, let it evaporate down until it was just this plate of salt. They would put it at the bottom of this earthen oven, and then they would put their fire on top of that. Now, what they did to burn, or what they used to burn, was camel... um, Well... I don't want any of those biscuits. Let's just say it that way if they've been cooked on that fire. Okay? That's what they had. As a matter of fact, for young girls growing up, one of the ways they trained to be ready to be married was to go gather camel uh, dung and dry it out and prepare it to be used year-round for cooking. And so one of the things that they discovered over a period of time, if they would put this salt plate at the bottom of their fire, it would, use, it would be used as a catalyst for the fire. And they would even ground some up and put it on top of it in order to help it start and burn better. So it is possible then that what Jesus is talking about here is that Christians are a catalyst for fire in our society. Now, what does that mean? That doesn't mean you should go out and burn down different kind of clinics hear me say that it does mean that somehow we need to make a difference and be constant catalyst for change where is the church in America these days on this kind of stuff Finally, and I think this is probably, if I had to just pick one of these five that Jesus might have been mentioning, this is the one that I think he probably had in mind at least, and I'm going to come back and summarize what I think he really was pointing out in just a second. The fifth one of these possibilities is that fire was used as a fertilizer. I mean, excuse me, salt was used as a fertilizer. And what they would do, you know, Teresa and I was, was... She and I were, man, my mouth is not working right today. Teresa and I were in Israel back in May. And part of our tour was to go to the Dead Sea. I said in the earlier service today, as a rule, I don't get really excited about going anywhere where part of the name of the place has dead in it, okay? I just, you know, it's just like there's just, I just don't get my trigger flipped with that too much and, but yet, she wanted to go and, you know, because part of what they do is they, they take the water from the Dead Sea, 
You know why they call it the Dead Sea, right? Because it's dead. Amazing. Water flows in, no water flows out, and you get runoff water from these, uh, this barren country on either side of it. And so what you get is this water that is laden with minerals. They call them salts. And so even to this day, that region is famous, and Israel is, has a great money-making uh, endeavor where they take water from that, they evaporate it off, they take the minerals that are left, and then they sell them as beauty aids. Now, we didn't buy any because we went to the store where they were selling this stuff. We call it a tourist money-grabbing spot. Uh, and I looked at the ladies who were selling this stuff, and I thought, I don't think you're nearly pretty enough for me to be willing to take a chance for that kind of price on the product. Sorry, just being honest with you. It was some high-dollar stuff. Now, what I want you to get from that is, to this day, they still practice what they did then. They take water out of that. They evaporate it off. They take the minerals and the salts that are left from that, and they market it. Well, in the first century, they would take that, especially the farmers would take that, and they would, behind their houses, pile up these salts that were left over from that so that they could use them to sprinkle them into the, into the soil because the minerals that were there helped with certain crops. Now, the problem with that was that when it, they would finally get rain, and you know, they had two seasons of rain there, but when it would rain, that pile of salts that they had behind their house would get leached out because of the rainwater, and it would be good for nothing as far as fertilizer. In fact, it would be just the opposite. It would kill the ground because the good minerals had been leached out. And so they would take that salt that was left over, and they would put it out and spread it on the paths leading up to their homes. Because once it got wet, it would form like pavement. So again, look at what Jesus says. If salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now here's the point from all of that. Jesus uses a metaphor for us that gives us lots of opportunities to make application in our daily lives. Here's the bottom line, I think. If you take all of those together, you get this truth. Christ's followers, as salt, impact their world. Every one of those five things that I just mentioned, plus the value part, every one of those points out the value of salt as it makes contact with this world. Jesus, before he ever gets to the part where he's elaborating on what it means when he talks about this righteousness, that's going to be from verse 20. Before he ever gets there, he clarifies our purpose for us. You are salt. Notice he doesn't say you should be salt. He says you are. By nature, by definition, his followers are salt, and they leave an impact on this world. So I ask you again, where is the church of the 21st century in American society? I'm afraid that we've missed one of the critical components here. 
See, salt only does what it's supposed to do when it engages the world. But what we've done in our churches in the 21st, well, the late 20th, end of the 21st century, is we've adopted who we are. We're having an adventure in missing the point because our churches have become great salt warehouses. And we build beautiful facilities and high walls and we flock into those places and we stand together and we say, look at us salt! But we don't really want to get out there and engage society. When we do get out and engage society, so often we look so much like society that we have no saltiness about us. Some of us have opted to be salt merchants and we sell salt. But Jesus says, You are salt. He didn't call us to be salt merchants. He certainly didn't call us to be a salt warehouse. He said, you're salt. So get out there and engage the elements of this world. Let me tell you something. That challenge right there kills a lot of Christian people. They just, in their mind, they cannot figure out how you can possibly get out of the comfort and the safety of a church into a lost world. Let me tell you something. You... (laughs) You can't find a justifiable biblical position that argues for salt warehouses. You can't. He sends us out. We make a difference. But look at the other one here, the other metaphor that he uses. You are the light of the world. This is pretty straightforward, not nearly as elaborate or as detailed as the salt metaphor. What is he saying with this? You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. You know what this means? This means that light, when you just boil it all down, it's visible. You can see it. One of the things that they would do back in those days, we saw this when we were over there, is that they would build their villages on hilltops. Now, they did that for a couple of really smart reasons. One of them was a great air conditioning system. That was before refrigerant, as we already said about the preservative thing. But uh, when you built a city in that area up on a hilltop, you could take advantage of the winds that would blow across the wilderness. And so even if it's hot wind, it's better than just living down in the valley where no wind blows, kind of like August in Lumberton in the trees. So up on a hill, you get that advantage, but there's another advantage to it, and that is that it's easier to defend a place that's up on a hilltop than it is down in the valley. It's easier to fight downhill than it is to try to fight while you're going uphill, and they knew that. But one of the byproducts of that, and probably even with Jesus and these disciples, as they're sitting up on this hillside, looking out over the Sea of Galilee, with villages like Magdala over just off to the side, that's where Mary Magdalene came from, and Nazareth just a little bit over the hill, and uh, Capernaum just under them, and so up on this northeastern part of the Sea of Galilee, on the hillside, looking out over the land, they could see these villages out there. And every one of them would have understood when Jesus said, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. 
when Teresa and I lived in Plainview, Texas. You know where that is? If you'll go to Lubbock on your way to Amarillo, it's about halfway, not quite halfway, almost. Look, think of it this way. It's 400 miles past the last tree south, okay? There's one tree between the North Pole and Plainview, Texas, and it was there by accident. It is flat, and you can see forever up there. Teresa and I lived in a town called Halfway. That really is the name of it. Just to help you nail that down, it was exactly halfway between quarterway and three-quarterway gins. And actually, uh, the church was in halfway. We lived three miles further out into the country on a farm, flat. But what that means is we were so far away from real civilization that we were isolated out there. And I could go out at night, and I did this on a regular basis, and just walk out into the backyard and look out across and 15 miles away and 20 miles away and about 18 miles away, a different direction, were these little towns in the panhandle. Plainview and Cress and Hart and uh, places like that. And, and you could just look out and you could not just see the glow of the city at night, you could see individual lights from the towns at great distances. And while I would do that, I would think of this passage. And Jesus says, you're the light of the world. Let me tell you something. In great darkness, light triumphs. The smallest flicker of light in the deepest, darkest place lights it up. While I was in New Mexico, serving at a church in Hobbs, New Mexico, one day I took a bunch of middle school students over to Carlsbad Caverns. Now, most people know about Carlsbad Caverns, the commercial trap, but actually it's part of the national park system there. And because we lived in the area, somebody told me about a different element of that that I had never heard of. And they had one called a place in, in the Carlsbad National Area there called the New Cave. And so I contacted the park service and said, I'd like, I've heard about this, I'd like to do it. They said, sure you can. Here's the deal, we have to have a certain number of people. You have to hike, you have to be prepared to hike. You're going through some rough country. uh, And we have to hire a guide for you because it's not open to the general public. And so they took us to this place called the New Cave. And it was a long drive and then it was a long walk. And they took us down into this cave. No, nothing other than just a little trail. No guardrails, handrails, nothing. And we walked way down into this cave. It smelled awful because of bats. You connect the dots there. We got way down into this cave, and uh, we had our flashlights because they didn't have lighting in there at that time. And the guide said, okay, now in the count of three, I want everybody to turn off your light. And so we did that, and I want you to know that was the darkest dark I've ever... I'd never in my life been dark like that. I'd heard people say, it's so dark that you can hold your hand right in front of your face and not see it. That's true. I, I mean, that's true. I couldn't wait to get the light back on, my flashlight. I was thinking to myself, I sure hope this is not a bad time. I sure hope my flashlight batteries don't go out of anybody else's because we'd have died down in there not able to find our way out so dark this world in which we live is a dark place 
And without the influence of God's people, it will continue to darken. The smallest flicker of light triumphs over the darkness. Jesus is very deliberate in his choice of words here. Adventures in missing the point. I wonder if the church of our day, that's too easy for us. Let's bring it back to us. I wonder if Crestwood Baptist Church, if we were pulled out of the equation of life in Lumberton Coons area, would there be a difference in this area because we weren't here? That's just another way of asking, are we being who Jesus said we are? Do we make a difference? It's too easy for us to talk about it even as a church, so let's just put it right back on your lap. If you were pulled out of the equation of your life, would your world be darker or lighter? I was having a discussion recently. Actually, a number of them. Different people, but I'm thinking of one. Reminded me of my days of backpacking. Used to go way up in the high country of New Mexico near Santa Fe in that area, Pecos Wilderness. And we would backpack way back up, get about 10,000, 11,000 feet, and spend some time back up in there. And one of the things that I discovered about that is it gets dark at night and cold. And so we decided that the best way to fight that off is to build a fire. And, and so we would build this campfire and sit around it, but we would try to build it where it was big enough that it would burn through the night so that when we woke up the next morning, it would still be something there. wouldn't have to restart the fire all the time. Well, what we discovered in that is if you're sitting around a fire that's blazing and going, then as you're watching that, you lose a sense of the detail of stuff that's in the dark. And you can look at the fire and you see it in bright, you can see right around it, but you turn and you look off into the darkness and you don't see anything. Trees just right there, you can't see them because your eyes haven't made the adjustment because of the brightness there. Many Christian people are like that. Blowing and going and bright and burning and things are great. God's close. But they're also, we all, and this, I fall into this just like the rest of us do, over a period of time, that fire begins to burn down. You sit in front of a fire that's blowing and going like that long enough and don't continue to feed it, what happens is it starts burning down. Before it's over with, all you have are embers there. And you can look around, you can see the darkness. Great, you can see trees. You can see stuff outside of that circle that you couldn't see before. But the fire's going out. So I was having a discussion with somebody recently. Not, none of you would know him talking about how he hates his job. I just, I just can't stand these people. <laughs> you relate to that? You know any people like that? And so I say to him, tell me about how your relationship with God is these days. Well, I'm, I'm, I hadn't been going to church. Really? How about Bible study? You've been studying your Bible? No, not really. How about praying? You've been doing that? No, not really. And I'm, I'm, I'm drawing this connection of the guy I used to know who challenged me in my own personal walk. The guy that I would see and he would ask me, how's your walk with God? I oh, mean, I don't... <laughs> 
<laughs> and so now he's saying, I hate life. Where's your relationship with God? Well, let me put it back to the fire. My fire burned down. And all of a sudden, I don't like my life anymore. What I want you to get from that is this. When we pay attention to the relationship that Jesus talked about in the Beatitudes, it changes us. That personal, vibrant relationship with a holy God changes us. But when we let that relationship go and we stop paying attention to the key parts of a walk with God, then that fire burns down. And when our fire burns down, we start missing the point of what life is all about. Why did God put us here? What I said to my friend was, why do you think God put you with all of those people at work that you just hate? How many other Christians are in that environment? He said, well, none, really. I said, okay, so if you're not being salt and light, then who is for those people? See, the tendency we have is to reduce our world to being all about us. And what Jesus is saying here is, it's not about you at all. It's about being salt and about being light and about making a difference and being visible in a really dark place. Where is the church in the 21st century? Where is Crestwood in the life of this part of Texas? Where are you in your world? Our tendency is to take this and immediately jump to a humanistic approach to Christianity and says, okay, well, I'm going to be salt and light. You can't make that happen. Matter of fact, in verse 20, this is where I was getting ready to go a minute ago. In verse 20, Jesus gives us the thesis for the entire Sermon on the Mount. I've already preached on this one. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. You know what he's saying with that? You can't legalize what I'm talking about. But we try to do that. We get a good, nice body of Christian belief, and then we want to beat everybody over the head with it. So you've got to believe it because we do. Where Jesus says, live it and make a difference. We are not going to win the battle of public opinion on Christian morals. We're not. Moses didn't win it in the wilderness with God's people who just moments before that got the law, the first chance they had, they jumped off of a relationship with God and went to Idolatry. This world's system is contrary to what Christ says is the kingdom of heaven. And we're not going to talk people into it. If you can talk them into it, then something's wrong. Jesus says, light of the world, salt of the earth, be different and be willing to talk. Adventures and missing the point. I'm 50 years old. That means I've spent a half a century in churches. And I've seen American society take a look at the church and say, no, thank you. 
Isn't that interesting that that's the case? And yet the church we find in the New Testament, these disciples of Jesus, one of my favorite passages of Scripture, Peter, James, and John, in the marketplace after the crucifixion, they get arrested. Why? And these Christians, they cause the trouble in the public, man, out there preaching Jesus. And the Sanhedrin, the same people who just moment, well, not moments, but in the overall scheme of things, just not long before that had crucified Jesus, the same group of leaders look at Peter, James, and John, and they say this, the Scripture says this, that they took note of them because they were untrained, ordinary men, but they had been with Jesus. What is it that makes us salt and light? It's him. The one who said, I am the light of the world. When you get right down to it, we are like the moon was this morning. You deer hunters hate it. I know you have to hate it. I walked out about 5 o'clock this morning, full moon. I mean, it was bright outside. That moon, just a chunk of rock. But it does a great job reflecting light. That's you, and that's me. Simply reflecting who Jesus is. When we get serious about that, this world will take note. I'll guarantee it. Let's pray. As we bow to pray, let me just challenge you this way. It's very possible that some of us here today heard the message of the moment when you heard that God thinks you're important. He cares for you. Jesus died on the cross so that you could have life. And I'd invite you today to accept him as your Savior, to acknowledge the fact that you need him. You're a sinner that separates you from a holy God, but Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. And if you don't know him as your Savior today, I invite you to life. And in order to get that, you have to renounce your sin, admit it, repent of it, and turn to Jesus Christ as your salvation. Place your faith in him. And I invite you to take that step. When we stand in just a moment, if that's what you need to do, and you know it, and right now your heart is pounding in your chest because you know that's what you need to do. Just walk down here. We'll talk about it. Nothing magic about walking the aisle. It's about coming to help, and we'll help you with that. Talk to you about how to accept Christ as your Savior. And some of us, we gave up being salt and light a long time ago, and we've been the ones who have just kind of wandered away from God. Today's the day to turn it around. Somebody in your circle desperately needs you to have a vibrant relationship with Christ. And I invite you to get that straight today. So, Father, we come before you as a broken people. Not a single one of us, and especially not me, measure up at this point. We come as needy people. We come knowing that you are our supply. You are the light of the world, and you've said, Come, all who are weary, and I'll give you rest. You offer us the living water that changes life for us. We come as your people. 
needing your help. Father, give us a a passion for those people that are in our circles of life, people who are living in darkness, people who are paying the price of a life separated from you. Help us to be what you call us to be. Give us a deep-seated sense of unease that drives us to engage people with the good news of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name.